Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Avram. By now, we've all heard of the great crypto crash of 2022, $2 trillion evaporated seemingly overnight, FTX crashed spectacularly, spawning so many headlines and other crashes, Uh, the price of Bitcoin fell to 18,000 in June 2022, uh, just one year after it reached an all-time high price of 69,000. So, lots of crashing. And a lot to talk about also on, you know, what's left. What are the pieces here that we're left with, right? Yeah, and I think we have the perfect guest to talk about what's left coming out of the crash. Uh, he's the CEO of Circle. Uh, he wasn't spared the pain last year. I mean, his, uh, you know, the amount of activity that went on his platform was cut in half. But it's a little bit different from the most speculative types of crypto. Uh, uh, the company runs stable coins. It's called USDC. That's pegged to the value of the dollar, uh, and he thinks that's an important part of the future of this industry. Jeremy's got some really interesting parallels also. You know, he's been in the tech industry for for a few decades and he talks about how um this is kind of similar to uh in his view of what happened in the early days of the internet. There was relatively low internet traffic, huge valuations though, and a pretty spectacular crash early on with the dot com uh bubble bursting. Um so it was really interesting to hear his thoughts on the state of the industry in light of, you know, some of these parallels. And in light of all of the the really, um, again, spectacular crashing headlines <laughs> that, that we've been reading about and writing, um, he also explained what a stable coin actually is and told us more about the unique characteristics of Circle's stablecoin that they helped develop, um, USDC. The other interesting thing about Jerry that's worthy of note here is that he, from the very beginning, when he started his company 10 years ago, said out loud that the crypto market needed to be regulated. Now, a lot of his colleagues in that market booed him at the time for doing that. But it seems that after the crash, more and more people are coming to his side. Yeah. And and just like with the in early days of the Internet, you know, uh, more regulation uh, led to a, a, a bigger and broader and more sustainable market. And obviously, um, much bigger companies um, jumped in and, and we're starting to see that happen now, which Jeremy also talked about. Um, we also had a chance to chat with him about um, his predictions for the future of the industry, you know, 10 years out, what does it look like? And um, some really interesting applications. You know, I think for some people, we still think of crypto and and digital payments as some kind of a dark web, you know, nefarious thing. And um, he talked about how Circle has been partnering with the UN and with NGOs to provide support digital payments to Ukrainian refugees um, via their stablecoin. So let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Circle CEO Jeremy Allaire. So, Jeremy, last year was kind of a disaster for crypto generally. You had the evaporation of about $2 trillion in wealth. You had the spectacular failure of FTX. Um, Even your company, Circle, which did better than most, uh, lost about half your value. So after all of that, 
Tell us what's left of crypto. What is crypto going to look like coming out of the wreckage? You know, I think if you if you step back um, and as someone who's been you know, working in Internet technology for almost 30 years, um, you have to kind of look at all these you know, cycles, uh, which is exactly what they are. And, you know, the, in every one of these cycles, you have a phase of, uh, you know, unbridled enthusiasm, extraordinary amounts of capital that flows into investment, uh, and then you have unrealized expectations. And when you kind of combine those kinds of investment cycles with, uh, you know, a, a tightening set of financial conditions, um, in particular, when you're dealing with technologies that are, are inherently tied to the uh, performance of financial assets, you, know, you, you end up with a scenario where um, you have, you know, essentially huge amounts of pain. And we, we saw this in the dot-com boom and bust in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I think if you use that as a, as a kind of comparable analogy, uh, kind of where, where do we see ourselves now? We saw basically huge amounts of things just disappear. Uh, we saw huge amounts of things that saw their value, whether it be cut in half or cut 80%. But then what you started to see on the other side of it is um, like the meaningful companies that have staying power. You start to see reactions from uh, you know other parts of society, meaning governments, regulators, others, to say, well, um, this is clearly here to stay. This is really big. Let's get the rules in place for this. So you're starting to see that happen which is, I think, very, very constructive and positive. And then you start to see the, the output of the technology investment. And so, um, you know, it's interesting if you, if you look just within crypto, for example, there was another cycle like this in 2017 and then a kind of crypto winter in 2018 and 2019. It was the total doldrums. But actually, a lot of the technology investments that went into 2017 and started to see things built in 2018 were the catalysts for the growth in this next era. Yeah, stick with the first part of that for a second. We'll come back to the regu regulation question. I get your point about this has been a spur for investment. But what we've learned in the process is that crypto is great for speculation, right? People, There are a bunch of people who made a lot of money, and there are a bunch of people who lost a lot of money, and it was a great speculative asset. But what have we learned about its underlying value beyond as a speculative asset? I think a few things. I, I think the first is um, when, when when we look at what's taking place today, and we're obviously within um, uh, one segment of all of this, which is sort of how do you take traditional money, in other words, you know, the liabilities of, of government uh, expressed in a digital currency form, um, these digital dollars, aka dollar stable coins. Uh, how do you take uh, traditional money, not some new invented money, or not some uh, new token that's tied to some protocol that someone invented, but just, you know, dollar for dollar, digital dollars, um, and and operationalize those on these networks. And what we've seen happen is really exciting. You know, while we've been impacted by things like the interest rate environment, people wanting to take money and put it into T-bills or other things, just like you've seen a huge drawdown in bank deposits, nearly $900 million dollars. Uh, you've seen a huge increase in people putting that in high-yield money market funds. You've seen similar dynamics at work with stablecoins. But at the same time, what we've seen is more and more um, developers, enterprises, uh, financial technology companies, uh, remittance companies that are just building more and more using this infrastructure. And so the benefits for us are 
fast, uh, global, interoperable uh, dollar settlement. And demand for you know, uh, dollars in the world is actually quite strong. Demand in emerging markets where people have weaker currencies remains strong. And so we're seeing you know, companies as far reaching as SAP that's integrating USDC into uh, the way they can do enterprise payments to some of the leading money remittance companies in the world, making this a core settlement offering like, like MoneyGram. Uh, and you know, more and more, we're seeing the biggest payments companies in the world. We saw recent news from PayPal, but you know, Visa and MasterCard have already announced initiatives to use USDC as a settlement technology. And so the, the technology has evolved a lot. Where I see things right now is um, great technology improvements for real world utility. And, and, you know, this has been a mantra of ours since last September. We held a big event and, and we sort of were arguing very hard that we have to move from this speculative value phase of crypto into the utility value phase. And that utility value phase has to be rooted in real money and, on, and, and in real technology usability. And that's where we've been focused. I think it sets us apart from a lot of other companies who really have been focused on speculative investment, creating trading exchanges, trying to get people to you know, buy into the latest new token. That's you know, largely uninteresting when we think about what we're trying to accomplish. So Jeremy, you, you talked a lot about USDC, and I wonder if you could just take a step back and tell people um, a little bit more about what it is. And obviously there are a lot of other stable coins out there. Um, how do you go about developing one and more importantly, getting it actually, you know, used, getting it deployed and getting uptake? Sure. So the, the basic vision behind USDC goes back to when we founded the company 10 years ago, which was this idea that you could take what we think of as traditional money, which are, you know, the obligations of government, government debt money. Um, and you could represent that in a digital currency form but where it could be made available on the public internet using open protocols in the same way that we built protocols for email messages and for exchanging information over the web or for doing a voice call, these kind of protocols that any device could connect to, software could connect to, and would allow, you know, in those cases, information and communications to flow. We envisioned something like that for dollars on the internet. So five years ago, actually, uh, yeah, a little, a little over five years ago, we introduced USDC, and it actually was a protocol for dollars on the internet. Technologically, it became possible. It wasn't possible 10 years ago. It really became technologically possible five years ago to do this. And so how we did it was, well, first, we had become one of the most regulated companies in our industry. We had worked with um, payments and, and, and state banking supervisors throughout the entire United States, from sea to shining sea, to get licensed for electronic money services similarly in the European Union and, and the UK. And, and that allowed us to issue what are considered stored value electronic money, um, just like you use when you use PayPal or when you use Cash App or a, a, a money transmission product, the, the legacy kind, like uh, say a Western Union transfer, but basically this elect, these electronic money units, um, which are regulated. So the first myth is that these are unregulated. We've been regulated uh, for a very long time, but we worked with regulators to get this product launched. And instead of it being you know, tied to a specific company or tied to a specific wallet, it was generally available on the internet as something that anyone could transact with. And, and that's contributed to, to, um, to, to the growth um, that we've seen over the past five years. 
And um, you know, it's, it's now it's as a medium of exchange on the internet, we've done over $11 trillion in transactions. And, and I would say it's super early days, right? This is like, this is like uh, talking about how much traffic went on the internet in 2002, and then imagining 20 years later, how much traffic goes on the internet. We're, we're, we're dealing with very, this is still, in my opinion, a very early stage technology um, but it's it's kind of go, getting into what I like to call its broadband moment. It's getting close to its broadband moment. And a lot of things contributing to that. Jason Gerzadis, the CEO of Deloitte US, is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. Jason, our ideas about work, where we work, when we work, how we work, all of those have continued to evolve since the pandemic. Is that a problem for business or is it an opportunity for business? That's a massive opportunity. Although I think that the answer is less clear, it is a profound set of challenges to be sure. But in the end, it's an opportunity to create a workplace, particularly in the face of more long-term systemic talent workforce constraints and limitations that brings out the best of a workforce. So people can be their genuine self at work, can have heightened levels of productivity and feel supported in all that they do. But I don't think the models are clear and we're seeing lots of experimentation, whether that's around hybrid and what does it mean to actually co-locate and what degree of co-location matters. It's also a function of how does technology get embedded into the workplace such that employees and workforces feel supported and enabled. And also the cultural elements related to diversity, equity, and and feeling supported to be your genuine self at work. It's the combination, Alan, of all those factors that leading companies will innovate around and find novel ways to bring together that will be highly desirous of leading talent and will be a differentiator in terms of businesses using their workplace and their work processes to win in new and different ways. Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next. Thank you. You brought up the word regulation quite a few times there. Um, so I think we should just di dive in. Um, it seems like, sounds like Circles believed in um, the need for for the company and for the market to be regulated for a long time, which um, is not and was not necessarily the popular opinion um, in, the, in the community, in the crypto community. So um, I'm wondering if you could just to give us a little bit of a deeper dive in, you know, why you think um, U.S. legislation is going to regulate stablecoins in, in particular and um, sort of what you've been pushing for specifically. Sure. So it, it's, it starts with actually 10 years ago when the, the U.S. government actually started to regulate this. Uh, so the, the Treasury Department issued rules that said if you're going to sit between the banking system and these virtual currency technologies, you have to be regulated as a, a financial institution. And you have to be responsible for knowing your customers, policing transactions, dealing with the risks of terrorism, of sanctions evaders, all these things. That was law 10 years ago. And so that then put in motion a whole series of requirements for any firm that wanted to be sitting between the banking system and, and blockchains and, and digital assets. So that was the starting point was this, this kind of um, uh, money transmission regulation and money service regulation, which was a big deal and, and, um, and sort of set, set a foundation. It's what made it possible for us to launch USDC 
uh, ultimately, because that is it falls under that that regulatory regime. Now, what's really happened um, in our space is uh, over the past few years, um, you know, the, there's been this rapid growth in um, in stable coins, and global regulators ha have looked at both stable coins and sort of the broader kind of crypto markets, and, and we can think of those as two separate things. There's these trading markets that's best represented by things like Binance or Coinbase or these kind of trading uh, sites. And then there's stable coins, which is a payment system innovation. It's a, it's a, it's a money innovation. Um, and so, you know, several years ago, the, the, the global regulatory community, you know, got concerned that, wow, these, these actually could get quite big. And if they get and they could be used really broadly and be very tightly integrated into the, the, the existing financial system. And so there was a real call for regulation. And it was actually the United States that led the way. The United States through the G7 and then through the G20. Uh, there's a there's a group called the Financial Stability Board, which supervises or, or, or I should say sets the policies for all G20 financial regulation said, here's a set of, of, of recommended policies for every member of the G20 to regulate stablecoins. And they all agreed to that actually uh, two years ago. And then, and then the US government sort of said to Congress, we need to do this. We need to regulate these. We need, this is urgent actually. That was the, the words of Janet Yellen. It's urgent that Congress act and establish regulations because there could be runs and there could be uh, you know, you know, real losses. And you know, there's been huge issues that have happened, actually, that so that the risks have borne out, actually, with the collapse of things like Terra uh, and, and, and that whole kind of Ponzi scheme. Um, but the, the impetus was there. And what we've now seen since those recommendations came in is that almost every major member of the G20 has established or is, is, is establishing regulations for stablecoins. The J Japan, the UK, the EU, Singapore, Hong Kong, the UAE, and the United States very close in Congress to establishing a law for payment stablecoin issuers such as Circle. So there's, there's been this huge progress on that. Yeah, so that gets to something you said last month that I want to ask you about. I mean, it was almost like a nationalist challenge. You said that the U.S. has a choice to make, whether it wants dollars to be the foundation of currency on the Internet or whether it wants one of those other countries you mentioned to lead the way instead of the U.S. What did you mean by this? Why is it so important? Why should we care? Well, the United States um, benefits greatly from the preeminent role of the dollar. The dollar is uh, allows for cheap borrowing for households and firms and for the government. It, it creates a preferential environment for global trade for the United States. It, it creates a mechanism of soft power around the world. And there's been this kind of dollar hegemony for, for quite some time. But that is very much under threat right now. Uh, it's difficult to go a week without hearing about new alliances that are being formed to create alternative payment systems. We know about um, you know, totalitarian regimes such as China that have a vision for surveillance money uh, that is tightly government controlled that they're issuing and trying to build. And so um, the, the competition over money is becoming a technological competition. And the technological competition is that the question I like to ask is, you know, what do you want the currency of the internet to be? Do you want it to be the digital dollar? Do you want it to be a digital euro or a digital yuan? And for the United States, 
um, there is both the, the active threat that it needs to manage on this, and there's the opportunity, which is to unleash in a rules-based free market system with, with good you know, uh, uh, regulation, free market competition, and, and allow this to thrive, and actually unleash the technological forces of, of market capitalism on the world and then have digital, you know, digital dollars through this technology revolution sweep the world and become the, the, the foundation of, of the next generation of commerce and finance in the world. And what does the U.S. have to do to take advantage of that opportunity? What are you asking for? So very specifically, um, the United States needs to establish a, a, a federal set of rules, uh, essentially a, a federal uh, regulatory regime for um, payment stable coins, aka digital dollars, that are issued by private sector firms that provide safety and soundness by holding one for one assets, unlike banks that rehypothecate money and take risk with money. So, creating a kind of full reserve digital dollar system that can then work on on this this kind of constantly upgradable infrastructure of, of the internet, and that is that is happening. And so, it's it's building the regulatory perimeter with a strong federal regulatory standard that's the, you know, the Federal Reserve actually can set so that everyone in the world who uses one of these, whether it's from Circle or PayPal or the next company that wants to do this, that everyone understands what these are, that they can be treated as, you know, the equivalent of cash on a balance sheet in someone's cash, in someone's, you know, corporate activities. And then we can unleash that. So, and and in the meantime, um, while there's hopefully this progress happening on the regulatory front. Um, we're seeing more and more traditional finance players jump into this. What What are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that companies like Circle are, are better positioned to lead the way there? Um, obviously, the traditional finance institutions have a, a huge um you know, customer base and 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 a lot of sway as well. But but what's what's your take on the role that they're playing right now? Yeah, I think um, it ties back to what we were just talking about a little bit, which is um, the fact that we just had a, a stablecoin bill voted uh, to the full house, and the fact that this is like it's, it's it's sort of down to some some nitty gritty issues that are being negotiated between Congress and the White House and so on. That gives a lot of people a signal that this is happening. And so as you get that clarity, major companies are going to start to come in. And that's a great thing. And that's exactly what the U.S. government should want. It should want major companies that are coming in. And for us, obviously, we've been, you know, we're, we're the startup. Uh, we're, we're not a startup anymore. We're 10 years old and we've got an, a, a pretty significant sized business today. But, um, uh, you know, you, you want to have that competition coming in and, and having clarity is there. So my expectation is there's going to be more of that. And it's not just in the United States. We're seeing that in every market. Japan has new stablecoin laws. There's big companies, the biggest internet companies, the biggest fintech companies, the biggest banks. They're all in the process of figuring out how to launch yen stablecoins, just as an example. You're seeing the same thing in the EU that has model law on stablecoins. So you're seeing this happen. Now, in terms of how I think about our position, we think it's really important, especially for these kind of um, you know, kind of protocols for money and uh, that, that are really building blocks uh, uh, of infrastructure for people to build on top of. We think it's really important that you have kind of credibly neutral market infrastructure. 
And, and, and that's how we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves as building protocols, APIs, building blocks that are credibly neutral. We're not biased by a given blockchain or a, big, a given uh, exchange or a, a, a payment business that we run. We want everyone to be able to use these these things. Real quick question for you. Um, one of the interesting applications for this that that we came across is that the work that you've been doing with NGOs and the the UN to make um, USDC usable by Ukrainian refugees. Can you just explain how that works and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, f- fundamentally, the promise of this is that you can enable, you know, anyone in the world that has a mobile handset to be able to, you know, receive and, and send and transact in safe digital dollars at the speed of the Internet, at the cost efficiency of, of moving data on the Internet, which is, is nearly free. So that's the promise. And so the promise has always been there that this can drive real financial inclusion that this can lower the costs of remittances, which are an extraordinary tax on the most the people who most need the money, but also can actually open up better forms of humanitarian aid. So we have a whole initiative called Circle Impact. A big part of that is partnering with global NGOs to make it um, easier for those NGOs to distribute digital cash to the people who have who are most in need. Um, and, and so we've, we formed a number of partnerships to do that. We're working with multiple UN agencies, the, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. We're working with a number of other very top tier international NGOs, basically enabling them to use USDC to direct digital cash payments to people with handsets. They know who those recipients are. That's Ukrainian refugees. That's, you know, uh, women in Afghanistan. It's doctors in Venezuela. It's uh, uh, earthquake victims in Syria and Turkey. I mean, these are really important things. And the global aid communities are very excited about this because cash is so prone to corruption and, and theft and so much of the money never makes it there. And this gives them a way to do that. And then we've partnered with, um, with global cash out uh, providers like MoneyGram so that you can actually take the digital cash and turn it into local currency cash wherever you are. Uh, Jeremy, that, that's a great transition to my last question, because I wanted you to take us 10 years forward. You've already said uh, maybe uh, these ki- kinds of uh, uh, transactions are 5% of the market, the dollar market or whatever. But w- what is the world going to look like? How is the world going to be a better place 10 years in the future because of what you're doing today? Paint us the picture of, of how of the value to society of this. There, there are a number of things. So the first is that just a lot of the ideas that we have about how money moves around are going to change. And they're going to basically feel a lot more like the internet, which is we don't think about long distance telephone calls anymore. We, we don't think about sending letters. Um, we, are, we have ubiquitous access to all of the world's knowledge instantly at no cost. We, we have the ability to kind of directly connect and have a video communication with anyone. The same thing's going to happen for money. The idea of a cross-border payment will sound as absurd as a, as a cross-border email sounds today. So basically, you know, money will move at the speed of the internet, basically for no cost, and, and it'll, be, it'll, it'll just work with any device, any piece of software, any piece of hardware, anywhere. So that's really powerful. And I think the implications for society are significant. When we unlocked information publishing and, and free global communications, 
the net world output of communications and the net world output of information went totally exponential, like million X. I actually believe if we can actually make the, the, the movement of money work the same way, that the velocity of money will explode as well. And when you have high velocity of money, that actually correlates very specifically to increased economic activity, increased economic opportunity. I actually think it's very exciting, but I got to tell you, just one, one I said the last one was the last question, but just one, one quick follow-up because I, I live in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of gigantic houses that were paid for by people who take a toll on financial transactions. They just get a little bit of every financial transaction and it adds up to a lot of money. If your vision is right, that toll taking should be reduced. The houses in Greenwich should be smaller. Uh, do you think that's where we'll end up? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if the houses in Greenwich are going to be smaller because it seems like that community figures out a lot all the time. But uh, I, I think, um, uh, yes, the toll, the tolls will shift. I mean, the, the, it's just like, you know, the unit economics of media and communications and publishing and, 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 and retail, like they all change, like they all really, really change and products got 10 X better. That is going to happen. Now. I also think that net world output of economic uh, and, and payment activity will grow. And so it actually will create law of large numbers It'll create some very significant, you know, scale businesses as, as part of that. And, and I think also, um, you know, there's a, a really key part of the financial system, which is extending credit, which is sort of, you know, essentially what I call the time value of money, people who need money now who don't have it and people who have money now who don't need it. And I think that this high velocity digital currency money with the programmability of things like smart contracts on blockchains is also going to unleash really, really powerful new ways for how credit gets delivered to the people who need it, to the entrepreneurs who need it, to the businesses and households that need it on a global scale. That's great. You got, you've got me excited now. Let's get out of this crypto winter and moved into the crypto spring. And what do you think, Maul? Crypto summer? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds crypto more fun. summer, yeah. But when this gets really big, people won't call it crypto. They'll, it'll be like, you know, we don't say the web really much anymore. We just talk about the internet or we talk about, you know, whatever the major, you know, technologies we're using are. And so I think success is when that's invisible. Jeremy, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hott. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 